All right, go ahead and stand with me and turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 32 as we look at the God of history today. You can find it on page 6 of the Pew Bible in front of you as Pastor Bruce brings the conclusion of the series through Genesis 1 through 11. I did the math on this. I think if, if we went through the rest of Genesis at the same pace, I think we'd be looking at Christmas of 2019. So, uh, so work through Genesis uh, 1, 1 through 11 and we're concluding series this morning. It is a genealogy, so buckle up. And uh, it's not quite the same as Pastor Chris had a couple of weeks ago, uh, but I told uh, Pastor Bruce this, yesterday when he sent this to me that I just, uh, for some reason, I thought I, ha I would have this this week, so I read it last week in preparation already. So we'll give it a go. We're going to be reading Genesis 11, 10 through 32. Listen as I read. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot our faxon. Two years after the flood, after he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarug. After he begot Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot, begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram, and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the lessons that you have uh, showed us and the truth that's been revealed to us in Genesis 1 through 11 of your story, your creation, your redemption, and the whole gospel story laid out, even in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. Thank you for Pastor Bruce and his preparation throughout the entire series, and today is the conclusion. Just help us to, uh, to have open hearts and minds and to, to learn and and dwell on and think on the things that we should learn and apply in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, God. Those first four words of the Bible are staggering in their implications. Five months ago, we began to explore the wonderful significance of those specific words as we embarked on a journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And this morning, we have arrived at the end of our journey and our series in Genesis 
chapters 1 through 11. And in bringing this series to a close, I, I feel as if I should congratulate you for your perseverance, because this is, after all, the longest series I have ever preached in my 16 years as your pastor. Perhaps we should have planned a party after church even to celebrate the occasion. But I know most of you here want to get home as quickly as possible so that you can watch another party taking place, the Chiefs game. This series has been, uh, in fact, I've shared this with some people, has been one of the more challenging series and at the same time one of the most rewarding series that I've ever preached for me personally. And I hope it has been true for you as well. There are a few sections of the Bible more crucial for us to not only understand, but to accept, to embrace, than these first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is where the story of the Bible begins. This is where we come to understand who God is, who we are, and how we were created, what it means to be made in the image of God, how sin entered the world, and how mankind and civilization scattered across the face of the earth. In fact, it's from these very chapters that we come to the foundational doctrines of the Bible pertaining to God and man, Satan, temptation, sin, judgment, grace, salvation. In fact, in these chapters, we learn also about God's design for creation, his design for the sanctity of human life, his design for gender, his design for work and rest, his design for sexuality, marriage, culture, and even language. All of that is in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is foundational to everything we believe and do as a church body and as Christ followers individually. Listen, if we ignore Genesis, we are in big, big trouble. For it's where we not only discover who God is, but we also discover our desperate need for a Savior. And what God himself did to provide one. It's in Genesis where we discover the very plan of God set in motion to provide a Savior for us. It's where we see God's story of redemption begin to unfold in history. And what do you know? We need the book of Genesis. And this morning, we need to give careful attention. We need to pay heed to the final section of Genesis 11 here. And yes, it's another genealogy. In fact, this will be the third genealogy we've come across in the series. Now, the, the problem of genealogies is rather obvious. I say problem. They're not necessarily problems. They're perhaps more like challenges. And uh, it's the list of names that we can't pronounce of people we don't know about. And, and to be honest with you, we don't really care to learn about. Quite honestly, this genealogy is one that all of us here might be inclined to just skip over, even in our own reading. But that would be to our loss. This genealogy, what is remarkable about this one in particular is that it shows us that our God is the God of history. 
And what we're going to see in this genealogy is right here, coming up on the screen. Uh, I encourage you to pull out those, the insert there, the notes, and follow along, take notes with your Bibles there. And here's what we learn about the God of history. God is steadily moving in history to accomplish his plan of salvation among all peoples of the world. The whole point of this genealogy is to show us this truth, to show us that God is the God of history who is working out his redemptive plan through the lives of people. This plan was first revealed to us. We caught a glimpse of it when God cursed the serpent after Adam and Eve had sinned way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In fact, it's the first mention of the gospel without using the word gospel. And you see it here. I'll read it to you in, where God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, that is Jesus Christ, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, that promise was fulfilled when Jesus came the first time to die on the cross. And now we await the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan when Jesus comes the second time to judge the world and establish his kingdom. Until then, God is steadily moving in history to do one thing, and that is to accomplish his plan of salvation among all the people's of the world. After the confusion of language at the Tower of Babel that we saw last Sunday, wave after wave of humanity, of people groups, left the land of Shinar and scattered across the face of the earth. And as they left, as they went, they took their rebellious hearts with them. And so what we have leading up to this genealogy, is the scattering of mankind was by and large the scattering of an idolatrous people who sought to live a life and sought to rule the world, have dominion over the world, totally apart from God. And so the Tower of Babel concludes with the human race once again, just as it was before the flood, separated from God by their sin. Now the question is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for humanity? And the answer is, absolutely. There is hope. You got it. Jesus is the hope of the world. And God's plan of salvation includes people from all nations who are scattered across the earth. And this genealogy shows us that God is steadily moving in history to accomplish that plan of redemption. Specifically, God's plan is fulfilled through one man, through one nation, as it unfolds in this genealogy. Now, understand something from the get-go. Know that God's concern always has been, always will be, all peoples of the world. And hopefully you have seen that in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. But now, in this transitional, this is genealogy is like a bridge between the first 11 chapters and chapters 12 through 50. Now the focus begins to shift. The focus of God's plan of salvation shifts 
to Abraham, one man, and to the nation of Israel, through whom God will now bless all peoples of the world. And that's what we see here in this transitional genealogy. So let's take the next few minutes. Let's unpack it. Let's see what we can learn from this genealogy and actually apply to our own lives here in the 21st century. Notice point number one. God's plan of salvation unfolds in the genealogy of Abraham's family. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard or you're familiar with Abraham. Abraham, after all, is the central figure of the book of Genesis. In fact, apart from Jesus Christ, it could be argued that Abraham is the most important figure in the Bible. And while 11 chapters in Genesis cover the period from creation to Abraham, which is at least 2,000 years, 14 chapters are devoted to the life of Abraham here in the book of Genesis. In fact, in several places, the New Testament actually uses Abraham as a prime example to explain that salvation is by grace, through faith, apart from works. Abraham stands as the father of the Jewish nation, directly in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And so, again, this genealogy shows us God's plan of salvation unfolding from Shem to Abram. That's Abram, uh, that's his original name. We know later in Genesis, God will change his name to Abraham. Moses tells us here in verse 10, look at it again. What it says in Genesis chapter 11 in verse 10, it says, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphraxed two years after the flood. And Moses concludes in verse 26, Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, what can we learn from this genealogy of Abraham's family? Well, there are two things. First of all, we learn that God's promised blessing on the descendants of Shem to Abram is according to grace and not merit. It's according to grace and not merit. Now, who was Shem? Shem was one of Noah's three sons. And Noah predicted, if you remember our lesson in that chapter on that there, Noah predicted that God's line of blessing would come through the son Shem. And what Moses is reminding us here is the very faithfulness of God to fulfill that prophecy of Noah. And sure enough, what do we see here? We see the line of Shem descending all the way down to Terah, the father of Abram. But this promised blessing on the descendants of Shem is based on God's amazing grace. Now, we do not know much about most of Shem's descendants that are listed here in this genealogy. But we do know something about Terah and his family. And that is that they are idol worshipers. That term, idol worshipers, means basically this, that they are what the Bible calls pagans, since they worship false gods instead of the one true living God. Moses tells us that Abraham's family lived in Ur, the city of Ur. He says that he calls it Ur of the Chaldeans. 
there in verse 28. And Ur of the Chaldeans was, one, was a prominent center for moon worship. Listen to what Joshua says about this very thing in Joshua chapter 24 and 23. And Joshua said to all the people, that is the people of God, the children of Israelites, he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. And they served whom? Other gods. Then I took, this is God speaking now, then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And so here's what we need to understand. Abraham came from a pagan family and was probably an idol worshiper himself when God called him. Here's the point of this. God's blessing of salvation. It never, never depends on human merit or human works. God did not look down from heaven and say, oh, there's a really, really good person there. I think I'll save him. Rather, Abraham was an idol worshiper. And God called him and saved him simply because of his grace. God doesn't save anyone because they somehow deserve it or they have earned it. And while that's a blow to our sinful pride, it's actually very, very good news. Because it means that we cannot do anything to qualify ourselves for God's salvation, other than to come humbly to our God. To come with a broken heart, a repentant heart, and come confessing our sin and asking for His mercy, and God will grant it because he is a merciful and gracious God. And so it was from God's redemptive plan to call a man and his wife, and from them build a family, and from that family build a nation, and from that nation God would do what? He would bless all the nations of the world. In fact, we are the recipients of that. From start to finish, get a load of this, it was all a work of grace. The second point we see here in this genealogy of Abraham's family is that sin always results in death. Sin always results in death, but we also have God's promise of life in Jesus Christ. Now, on the surface, genealogies appear to all be the same. Just a bunch of names, a list of names of people who have died that we don't know anything about. And while that's true, for the most part, there is a couple of key differences between the genealogy of Adam that we looked at in Genesis chapter 5 and this genealogy, the genealogy of Shem here in Genesis 11. Referring back to Genesis chapter 5, the genealogy of Adam emphasizes that God's promise of death as a result of sin is true. God said it would be. In fact, the most significant phrase in Adam's genealogy back there in Genesis chapter 5 is, and he died. In fact, eight different times Moses tells us the name of a person, how long that person lived, 
and he died eight times. The death bell rings, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Why does Moses do this? Because Moses wants us to know something. Moses wants us to understand that the result of sin is that we what? We die. Moses is trying to communicate to us a very important doctrine about sin. And that is, sin always brings death. And so the dark clouds of death overshadow the long, long years of life in Adam's genealogy there in Genesis chapter 5. But this genealogy, the genealogy of Shem here in Genesis 11, it emphasizes a whole different point. And it emphasizes that God's promise of life is true, even though the longevity of life was declining at this time in human history. Moses basically records the same information about each individual in this genealogy, except you may have noticed it, there's no mention of the phrase, and he died. You don't read that in this genealogy. Why not? Didn't these people die too? Yes, every one of them died. But there's no need to state the obvious anymore. By the time we reach Genesis 11, we now know the consequences of sin is death. We have seen the flood in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. And we've seen the scattering of sinful people at Babel here in Genesis 11. And so Moses now, in writing this specifically to the children of Israel as they enter into the promised land and preparing them for that, and now by application for us, Moses wants to emphasize that God's promise of life is true. Even though the longevity of life was taking a nosedive. Did you notice how the lifespans are getting shorter in this genealogy? In Genesis chapter 5, people lived for hundreds of years. In fact, several men lived over 900 years, and the shortest lifespan was 777 years. But what about here in Genesis 11? Lifespans are now much shorter. Shem lived 600 years. Eber, he lived 430 years. Peleg lived 239 years. And Nahor, he only lives, I say only in relative comparison to our lives today, he only lived 148 years. You say, well, what's happening here? Sin is beginning to take its toll on humanity. People are dying at younger and younger ages. The reality is, we ourselves, we are now living in a fallen world. We are living in a decaying, dying world because sin reigns in this world. And again, the question is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for us here? Absolutely. In the genealogy of Abraham's family shows us what God did to bring hope to this dying world in which we live. John Davis says this, and I quote, Within Genesis 11, there is a marked contrast 
on the one hand, human rebellion leading to the divine judgment of scattering. On the other hand, we see divine grace leading to the call of Abraham, a call which provided hope for the nations and salvation to the lost. This is God's rescue mission. And that rescue mission is to redeem dying rebels like us that he mapped out in eternity past. And what God mapped out in eternity past, let me tell you, he is carrying out in the present right on schedule just as he planned. This is what Genesis 11 is all about. We are seeing here the unfolding of God's plan of salvation in the genealogy of Abraham's family. The second part of this genealogy, though, shows us another aspect of God's plan of salvation. Notice this. God's plan of salvation unfolds in the preparation of Abraham's faith. Notice again the preparation of his faith in the genealogy of terror. Let's read it one more time here in verses 27 through 32. Notice it with me in your Bibles or your notes. It says, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And by the way, Lot will become a source of frustration and irritation for Abraham later down the road. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died at Haran. Now let me just, let me, let me highlight a few observations from Abraham's family right here in these verses. First of all, Terah had three, and this is not in your notes, so Terah had three sons. We see that. He had son uh, Abraham, and he had Nahor and Haran. And Haran died while his father was still alive. So he died before his father died, while the family was all still living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now Haran, one of the three sons of Terah, had two daughters, that is Milcah and Iscah, as well as a son named Lot. We also learn that Terah's other two sons married. Nahor married Milcah, his orphan niece, and Abraham married Sarai who is the daughter of Terah, which makes Sarai the half-sister of Abraham. Now, what's interesting is Moses withholds this information from us at this point in Genesis. Why? So as not to ruin the suspense of it, which he then reveals later on in Genesis chapter 20, when Abraham, in order to save his own skin, reveals to Abimelech that Sarai is his half-sister because he was getting ready to marry Sarai. And Abraham says, she's already my wife. But she's also my half-sister. Now, for those who might be wondering, marriage to close relatives was fairly common in the early history of humanity. And so it would not have had the same taboo, the same stigma that it has today. 
with these family ties in mind, I want us to see how God uses this in the preparation of Abraham's fate. Notice, first of all, Abraham must be willing to trust God. Abraham must be willing to trust God and to forsake everything in response to God's call. The most important thing to see is that at this time in Abraham's family, they were moon worshipers living in the prominent center of lunar religion. According to one author, listen to what he says, the city of Ur was dominated by a massive three-stage ziggurat built by Ur-Namu during the beginning of the second millennium B.C., Each stage was colored distinctively, with the top level bearing the silver one-room shrine to Nana, the moon god. The royal cemetery reveals that ritual burials were sealed with the horrors of human sacrifice. And again, the point to understand here is that Abraham's family, including Abraham himself, worship false gods. As a moon worshiper, Abraham perhaps would have stood atop the ziggurat's stargazing platform on night watches and even offered his own worship to a moon god. This is the religious background from which God called Abraham to forsake. In fact, you fast forward to the New Testament all the way to the book of Acts. And there in Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen, who is preaching this phenomenal sermon. And he states this. He gives us this insight about Abraham's call here in Acts 7, verses 2 through 4. He tells, he says this, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that is still in Ur of the Chaldeans, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him, that is God moved him, to this land in which you now dwell. And so again, understand, God called Abraham to forsake He called him to leave his country, to leave his family, and to leave his religion in order to follow the one true living God. You say, well, how did Abraham respond to all that? Well, as we look at this passage, we see Abraham and his family leaving the city of Ur and making their way to the city of Haran, which, by the way, is another center for moon worship. Now, we don't know the reasons why Abraham's father moved. Perhaps he was old and Abraham felt a responsibility to care for him. And so Abraham took his father Terah along with him. Perhaps God's call to Abraham influenced his father to leave his home city as well. What we do know is this. Terah only gets halfway to the land of Canaan. And he stops in Haran. You say, why? Why would he stop halfway? 
Well, again, we don't know exactly why. Maybe because of his age, he just wore out physically and he couldn't go on any further. Maybe it had to do with his own heart. He wasn't willing to leave his country. He wasn't willing to forsake his people. He wasn't willing to give up his religion of moon worship in order to follow the one true living God. Whatever the case, what's very, very clear is that Abraham was not simply going along with his father Terah. Abraham was taking the lead in trusting God. He is setting the example in forsaking everything to follow the one true living God. Now the question needs to be asked, can that be said for us? Could that be said of you? Regardless of what your family is doing. Regardless of what your family does for worship or religion regardless of what even your friends do and how they live. Here's the point. Abraham's response to God's call, there's no doubt about it, it was a monumental act of faith. He was a pagan idolater who worshipped false gods. He was advanced in his years, Abraham was. Abraham was prosperous by this point in his life. He was settled in his pagan country, and he was comfortable in his network of relationships with both family and friends. And yet, in response to God's grace intervening in his life, he trusted God, and he left everything to follow God. Now, lest we trivialize Adam's, I mean Abraham's trust in God in his act of faith here, please know, here's the second point, Abraham faced three huge problems along the way that would test his faith in God. In fact, God would test his faith over and over again. In fact, first of all, these three huge problems, Abraham was still in the wrong land. Remember, Abraham's family stopped short of the land of Canaan. And instead, they settled in Haran, which is still in the land of the Chaldeans, by the way. And perhaps this is why God said to Abraham in the very next chapter here in verse 1, chapter 12, God tells Abraham again, get out of your country. Get out, leave from your kindred and from your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And so Abraham is called out of the land of the Chaldeans and into the land of Canaan. And this move would shape and test his faith in God. Second, Abraham's wife had, no barren, had, had a barren womb. That's a huge problem. In light of what God calls, tells Abraham in the verse 2 of Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, listen, hey, you follow me, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. But as Abraham and Sarah will learn later, her barrenness, her inability at this point in her life to have children was simply a platform. It was a stage for God to show his power, for God to reveal his glory in the seemingly impossible situations in their life. And then third problem that Abraham's facing is he has no descendant. I mean, how can Abraham become the father of this great nation if he has no descendant? 
And more importantly, how can God bless all the nations of the earth through His Son, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, without a descendant? Well, to us, this seems like a huge problem. But with God, all things are what? Possible as He fulfills and as He moves in history to fulfill His plan of salvation through Abraham, through this great nation that He's going to build through Abraham and through the promised seed of Jesus Christ. Now, these three obstacles, there's no doubt. In fact, uh, I've been contemplating, even as I do start to do sermon preparation for next year, God seeking his leading, maybe we should take time to study the life of Abraham. And uh, because if we do, what we will see is there is no doubt that these obstacles would challenge Abraham's faith in God. And yet, these challenges were necessary in order to prepare Abraham to become the father of God's chosen people. As A.W. Tozer said it, he said it this way, it is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him or humbled him deeply. Let that sink in for a moment. Because that statement is so, so true. But what happens is we often resist that humbling that God wants to bring to our lives. We fight against it. As God prepared Abraham through trial and loss and suffering, so God prepares even us today in the same way. Do you realize what this means? This means nothing is ever wasted with God. Your pain is not wasted. Your sorrow is not wasted. Your loss is not wasted. Your defeats are not wasted. Your broken dreams are not wasted. This means your tears that you shed at night on your pillow have a purpose. This means your suffering has a place in God's plan. We can state it this way. God prepares us for better things to come by weaning us from these things that we think we could never live without in this world. Abraham didn't know it at the time. But his greatest days were yet to come as he trusted God and as he stepped out in faith one day at a time. The writer of Hebrews, he summarizes Abraham's life this way. Listen to what he writes in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. He says, by faith, and that's the key. That is the whole key. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not even knowing where he was going. That is remarkable. And by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, which is the antithesis of what we saw at the Tower of Babel in the city of Babel. 
Those people sought to make a name for themselves apart from God. That city was a name unto themselves apart from God. And yet we see Abraham here, by faith, waiting for God to do something in his life. Waiting for God to exalt him and to reward him for his obedience in his act of faith. Make no mistake about it. God is steadily moving through history to accomplish his plan of salvation among all the peoples of the world. And that plan unfolds before our eyes in the genealogy of Abraham's family and even in the preparation of Abraham's faith. And it's all a work of God's amazing grace. It's beautiful. And so here's Abraham a moon-worshiping pagan idolater, transformed by the grace of God. And you know what? That's no different than us. Think about it. What's the difference between believers who put their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ and unbelievers who put their hope in this world? The difference is the grace of God at work in our lives. Like Abraham, we are simply sinners saved by grace from the fires of judgment. What a difference that makes in our lives, both now in this world and for all eternity. And in the context here of Genesis 11, and in its reference to the scattered nations across the face of the world, what a difference God's grace makes in all the peoples of the world. Listen, the story of Abraham proves that there is no one, no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace when the Spirit of God is at work in their life. If God can save a moon-worshipping pagan like Abraham, then God can save anyone, including you. If God can pluck this man out of a pagan country, a pagan family, then God can intervene in your life as well. In fact, notice this, the God of salvation in you. God has a plan to redeem people for his glory. And do you realize that plan is extended to you here today through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Even as God's hand of grace was on Abraham, do you realize his hand of grace is upon all of us here this morning? In fact, the fact that you're here right now today is proof that God is intervening in your life and God is calling you to follow him. Like Abraham, you may still be in Ur of the Chaldeans. That is, you have not come to know God in saving faith. And probably like Abraham, in this stage of his life, you are serving perhaps false gods of your own making. You say, what kind of false gods? It's the false gods that most people here in our country serve. The false gods of money, the false gods of pleasure, the false gods of success, and even self. But now you have heard about the one true living God. And he's calling you by name. And he's saying, I want you to turn from your sin. I want you to follow me. And like Abraham, if you will respond in faith, your life will never, never be the same. 
Some of you may be sidetracked, though. You may be sidetracked in Haran. This was Abraham's halfway point. He began to follow God's call when he left the city of Ur and moved to the city of Haran. But Abraham got sidetracked for a variety of different reasons. And that's when God's grace, you know what, it intervened again and called Abraham to get out of Haran. And if you've started to follow the Lord, but have gotten sidetracked along the way, listen, today, he is telling you, and he comes to you, and he says to you, come on, I want you to follow me. Don't let the ways of the world distract you. Don't let them pull you back. I am your source of life. I am your only hope from sin and death. The important thing here is, wherever you may be at life, is to yield yourself to the Lord. To submit to his word and to his plan of redemption. He wants to redeem people from their sins. And we praise him for that. And his invitation is extended to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, I love that. It's the most famous verse in the whole world. We could say it together as a church congregation. In fact, let's do that. On the count of three, let's say John 3.16. Let's repeat it. If you need the words, it's there in your notes where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. question is, have you responded to that invitation? Or are you still following your own self-made God? Pursuing your own dreams in your own way of life. That will only come up empty and lead you nowhere. Jesus is the hope of the world, which means he is the hope of your life. And he offers you eternal life through his work on the cross and his resurrection. Will you respond? Will you give your life over to the Lord? And say, Lord, here it is. Take it. I trust you. I ask you to forgive me. I repent of my sin. And by faith, I receive your goodness, your grace, and everything that you have for me. I don't even know what it all means, but I want it. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word to us here in Genesis. We are humbled that you would save us from our sins through your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for your faithfulness to move in history to accomplish your plan of salvation among all the peoples of the world. And even now, as we move into our world outreach celebration, help us not to be complacent in this mission, but to sow the seeds of the gospel with your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With your head still bowed, we're going to take just a moment here. The instrumentalists are going to play. And as they do, this is our time to respond right where you're seated. And so if God is, is, man, if he is tugging at your heart, don't, don't say no to him. Cry out to him in prayer. 
Do business with God as he leads in your own heart while the instrumentals play. And then when they're done, the praise team's going to come. We're going to take up our offering, and then we'll sing again unto our Lord.